Take your Bibles, turn along with me to Colossians chapter 1. If you would, please. We've been studying the book of Colossians together. We've been looking at the theme of the gospel hope of Christ in you. And this morning we come to these thematic verses. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, in previous weeks, we've been looking at the glories of Christ himself. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, present to us some of the most glorious Christology in all the Bible. As we saw there in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, those Verses are likely an early Christian hymn. That if you had begun some of those sentences, uh, someone in the congregation could have finished it for you. These were well-known statements about the glories of Christ. Look at verse 15. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. First in position of authority. First in priority. He's the creator of all things. Verse 16. Everything that is, he made and spoke it into existence. He's the goal of all creation as all things have been created for him. Verse 17. He's before all things, which means he is preexistent to all things, to all the rest of creation. He's the sustainer of all things, holding it all together, keeping it all together, keeping it all going, verse 17. Christ is also the head of the body, the church, the new creation. So he's not only the creator of the natural creation, but he's the creator of the new creation, and he's the head of it. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, the first to rise again without experiencing death again, but he's just the first of many more to come and to follow after him. Verse 18 also says he's going to come to have first place in everything. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 19, all the fullness of deity dwells in him. He's not mostly God. He's not kind to God. Whatever it means to be God, the fullness of that deity dwelt in Christ. Through Christ, God will reconcile all things to himself. He will set all things right. He will put everything in its proper place. And he'll do it with the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ at the center. Now, all of this is amazing enough. All of this ought to leave us gasping in wonder. To think that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would take on humanity and become the God-man. Truly God, truly man. To die in our place, to be rejected by his own countrymen, to experience suffering and hardship, to be neglected, to be... Forsaken, 
and to serve as a sacrifice for sin, all in order to reconcile us to a holy God. But as amazing as that is, there's still more to leave us breathless. There's much more. For in our text this morning, Paul tells us that this same glorious Christ, this incomparable Christ, has not only come to this earth to die for us and rise again, but he goes on to explain that this same Christ, incomparable Christ, has come to actually take up residence within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what verse 27 says. Now it comes at the end of the section of Scripture we're going to study together today. Verses uh, 24 through 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory, comes at the very end. But I think Paul means to do that as a kind of crescendo to all that he has just said. Notice verse 27. Look what he says. God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Christ in you. Christ in you. Christ in you. No matter how you slice it, it's amazing. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Think about that. What wonder there, here, there is here for us. When we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, not only do we have the amazing blessing of being forgiven of all our sins, all of them wiped away, not only do we have peace with God now, not only do we receive eternal life, that is our present possession and keeps paying dividends for the rest of eternity. Not only are we guaranteed a home in heaven, but on top of all of that, as if that weren't enough, Christ comes to dwell in us. To live in us. He comes to make his home in us, to indwell us. This same unfathomable Christ, described so gloriously in verses 15 through 20, comes to make his abode inside of us. He whom the very heavens cannot contain comes and takes up residence inside us. Christ in you. The hope of glory. This morning we're going to consider the realities of this great truth. Christ in you. And how that truth changes us perpetually until he comes. So let's look. Colossians chapter 1 verses 24 through 27. Let me read it for you. Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. Paul continues as he writes. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from him, from God, 
bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is our great hope, our settled certainty, and this is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, your truth. Your truth, which is the mystery without which we would still live in darkness. So much of the word of God to us has revealed things that were heretofore unknown and unknowable. We could not discover them on our own. We needed revelation from you, special revelation, special disclosure. And Lord, you have done that. You have revealed in the pages of your word everything that is necessary for life and godliness through our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for the truth that you indwell us. Help us unpack that this morning. Help us to think deeply about that, to let it ruminate in our hearts and souls and minds and reflect just how dear we are to you. And may that in turn translate into us growing in the dearness of your nearness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being in us and with us and for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, this isn't the only place in Paul's writings where he said something like this. That Christ is in us who believe. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus alone, then Jesus indwells you. He's come to take up residence within you. Paul taught this elsewhere. Romans 8.10, 2 Corinthians 13.5, Ephesians 3.17. Each of these passages teach the same truth that Christ is in us who believe. This truth wasn't something new that the Apostle Paul was trying to pass off on his readers. Not at all. It was in keeping and consistent with the teachings of Jesus himself. Jesus had revealed this truth to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion in that upper room. In John 14, verses 19 through 20, Jesus said this. Listen to what he said. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. I'm going away. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This sounds like Russian nesting dolls or something. (laughs) And the disciples had to be scratching their head. What what are you saying, Jesus? You're going away. The world's not going to see me. I'm going to live. I live. And because I live, you're going to live also. You'll know that I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I in you. 
Well, a few verses later, John 14, 23, Jesus says this, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So you, you get Jesus in you, and because the Father is in Jesus, when Jesus is in you, the Father is in you, right? You get both. And of course, we know we get the Spirit as well. The Spirit indwells us. This is something theologians call the inseparable operations of the Trinity. They never act independent of one another because they are one. Three persons, one essence. So, you get the Spirit, you get the Son, you get the Father indwelling. Jesus prays later on in John 17, 23 in his high priestly prayer. He says, Father, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. I'm going to be in them. And Father, because I'm in them and because you're in me, you're in them as well. And this is going to perfect their unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. So Jesus revealed that he was going to be in us, indwelling us, uniting us to himself and to the Father and to the Spirit. Now we're used to thinking about the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We, as Christians, we talk about that a lot, and rightly so. But it's through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of Christ comes to dwell in us as well and along with him, the Father, too. In some places, the emphasis of Scripture is on the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. In other places in Scripture, the emphasis is on the Son's indwelling of us. Here in Colossians 1, Paul emphasizes the indwelling presence of Christ in the believer. Now, as Paul reminds us of this awesome reality that Christ is in us and that this truth is actually the hope of glory, we can see three ways in which Christ in you changes us. That's what we're going to look at this morning from this passage. Three ways in which Christ in you, that truth, that reality, changes us. Notice that I said it changes us. That means it's an ongoing change. It's a process of change. It's not a one and done kind of change that I'm referring to. Now, Christ coming to indwell us is a one and done moment. But that one and done moment of Christ coming to indwell us continues to have ongoing effects. Continues to transform us and change us. And that's what I want to look at, these ongoing changes that the truth of Christ in you makes for us. Like the rest of our sanctification, this change that comes as a result of Christ being in us is a gradual, progressive change that comes as we increasingly live in the reality of Christ in us. So, the first change that this makes in us, Christ in you transforms our suffering into joy. It transforms our suffering into joy. That's what it did for the Apostle Paul. 
In verse 23, if you go back a verse to set the context a little bit, Paul's just been writing about the hope of the gospel that the Colossians had heard and had come to believe in. The gospel that Jesus Christ is the Savior. The gospel that had been proclaimed throughout the known world and of which Paul had been made a minister. Having mentioned that he was a minister or a servant of the gospel, Paul now in verse 24 reminds them that he's also, as a servant, suffering for the sake of the gospel. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. You may recall when we began our study of this book that I said that Paul is writing this as a prisoner in Rome under house arrest. Paul, as he writes this, is suffering. He's not a free man here. He can't go and do as he wishes or wills. He is stuck in one residence under house arrest. He did not enjoy freedom of movement. Paul, leading up to this house arrest, had been arrested on charges that his teachings were contrary to Jewish teaching and that they were therefore upsetting the peace of Rome. And during this two-year house arrest, Paul could receive visitors and he was encouraging brothers and sisters who would come from afar and visit him and he would counsel them and so forth. But he was also busy writing. And during this house arrest, Paul would write the letters we know and have been included in Scripture as Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. This confinement, of course, was only a small part of the sufferings that Paul would endure throughout his lifetime for the sake of the gospel in service to Christ. Paul was no stranger to suffering. Those who serve Christ will suffer. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28, Paul gives us a whole laundry list of his sufferings as a servant of Christ in service to the gospel. You remember that passage where he is defending his apostleship? He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights. I've been in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Well, man, compared to that, House arrest in Rome sounded pretty good. (laughs) Point is, Paul's been through it. And he bore in his body the evidence of his service to Christ. Those who serve Christ will suffer for Christ. For Paul... His service and the suffering that came with it was all part of a stewardship that 
with which he'd been entrusted by God. And his job was simply to be faithful, to trust God, be faithful with what had been entrusted to him. God had called Paul on the road to Damascus, both to salvation and to service. And this service would bring with it suffering. You may remember in Acts chapter 9, in Damascus, there was a a disciple there named Ananias, and he was to find Paul, who was blinded from his interaction with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Now converted Paul is uh, blind, and Ananias is to go and help him. And the Lord said this to Ananias, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. For Paul, suffering and service went hand in hand. And the same is true for all who would follow Jesus Christ. Our sufferings... (laughs) thankfully, probably look a lot different than the Apostle Paul's sufferings. But it might result in a lost relationship. It might result in a loss of a promotion or a lost job. Increasingly, in these dark days, that may very well be what's called for us to suffer. Paul viewed his sufferings as being for the benefit of the church What he says, verse 24, Colossians 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. This is for the benefit of the body. And he says he does this in filling up what is lacking. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now in saying that, he's not... He's not denying the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice for sin. Not at all. His his letters and the book of Colossians itself makes it clear that that's not his point. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient to pay the price for the sins of all who would believe on Jesus. No question about it. So what does Paul mean by this? What Paul means here is that he is simply being faithful to his heavenly calling as a servant of Christ and of his body. And Paul knows that throughout his lifetime in service to Christ, because there was a prophecy, after all, made over him, spoken over him, that he, was, he had to suffer greatly for the name of Christ, that he was, his tank wasn't yet full of suffering. There was more to come, and indeed we know there was. Paul would eventually lose his life. Tradition tells us he lost his head for the sake of the gospel. But as he does this, as he suffers for the sake of the gospel, for the health of the church, in service to Christ, he does this with joy. How? How is it that a believer can rejoice in the midst of their suffering? Well, through many ways, chief among them is knowing that Christ is in you. As you suffer, Christ has not abandoned you. 
He couldn't be any closer to you. He is in you. And he so identifies with you that the person who persecutes a Christian is actually persecuting Christ. Remember, that's what Jesus said to the apostle Paul before he became the apostle on the road to Damascus. He confronted him and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? Is that what he said? No. Why are you persecuting me? In persecuting these believers, Paul, you are persecuting me. Jesus so identifies with us in our sufferings that he takes them as his own. And that can give us joy. Knowing that we are not alone, that Jesus is there with us, that indeed Jesus is in us, identifying with us, empowering us. He's not abandoned us. He's not left us to go it alone. It can also bring us joy knowing that the suffering we experience can bring strengthening to the body as as we give the body a faithful example to follow. What does it look like to suffer well? It can give us joy. Likewise, knowing that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. See, the truth that Christ is in us, that he's been given to us, as it were, as a down payment of future glory reminds us that the best is yet to come, reminds us that though we are suffering now, we are going to be victorious in the end. And that even now we've been made more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. We can rejoice in the midst of our suffering because Christ is in us. And because he is in us, he is with us. Remember the example of the apostles when they were flogged in Jerusalem by the council of the Sanhedrin and then released. Acts 5.41 tells us, So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing. Why? Because they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, the indwelling Christ, the transcendent Christ, the imminent Christ, the apostles were willing to endure any shame or hardship and did so rejoicing. Acts 16, when Paul and Silas were thrown into prison for preaching the gospel, what were they doing at midnight before the ground shook? Singing praise to God. Hymns of praise to God. How can you do that? Because you know Christ is in you. What can man do to me? For God is for me. And he's for me in Christ. So it transforms our sorrows into joy. Secondly, Christ in you remakes our life into a stewardship of service. The truth of Christ in us 
forces us to re-examine how we're living and what we're living for. Paul says in verse 25 that he was made a minister or a servant of the church. This position as a servant of the church had been given him as a stewardship from God. Paul viewed his whole life as a stewardship. Paul viewed his ministry and his gifts as a stewardship. Something that has been entrusted to him and that he was required to be faithful over. This stewardship of service was for the benefit of the church. That through Paul's service, they would hear the gospel, believe on Christ, and grow in Christ. The purpose of this stewardship was so that the preaching of the Word would spread and the gospel would spread with it and it might be fully carried out. So Paul was a servant put into service by God's call for their benefit so that the ministry of the gospel might be fully carried out. It's a reminder to us that God uses means in the spread of his gospel. And the means that God most frequently uses is us. God could write the gospel in the sky, that's true, he could, but that's not what he's chosen to do. He's chosen to use us as his ambassadors, his mouthpieces, his representatives. And the reality of Christ in us increasingly causes us to view our lives differently. Colossians 3.3, listen to how Paul says this here, just a few chapters later. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Lance has died. What Lance wants, what Lance desires is not important anymore. Lance has died and my life is now hidden. Here's my life. It's now hidden with Christ in God. That is an implication of the indwelling Christ. That's not about me. It's about something far bigger, something far more transcendent than my piddly 50, 60, 70, 80 years if the Lord should tarry and give me life. It's not about accumulating things. It's not about having experiences. It's about faithfully fulfilling the stewardship He has entrusted to me. Whatever that is, whatever that looks like for me and whatever that looks like for you. Christ in you remakes our life into a stewardship of service. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. God has purposes for me and his purposes are for me in Christ. Thirdly, Christ in you sets our hope on glory. So in verse 25, Paul states he's been called into this divine service to carry out the preaching of the word of God, which he now further defines and specifies in verse 26. The word of God is the mystery. That is, he says, the mystery, which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. Well, what is this mystery that is the word of God? Well, mystery is a, is a concept, a truth that Paul turns to again and again in his writings. And he defines what this mystery is right here. 
right in the context. He says, first of all, a mystery is something that has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. So a mystery is a truth that has previously been concealed, but that now has been supernaturally revealed. A mystery is a revelation from God that was previously unknown and unknowable by human beings without a special revelation from God. Now, what is the content of this mystery that was previously unknown but now has been revealed to the saints, his holy ones, the ones who are Christians, the ones who are in Christ and in whom is Christ? What is this mystery? Paul described the content of this mystery, first of all, before revealing exactly what it is. He says, it, is, it contains the riches of glory. Whatever this mystery is, it contains the riches of glory. Now, glory is a word that's used oftentimes in Scripture in reference to God. God is glorious. And that word at its root means weighty. It has substance. It's weighty. It also has a sense of being shining, shiny with splendor. Shining and resplendent. This glorious, weighty truth that is shining in splendor, God is now willed to make known among the Gentiles and not just to the Jews. So he's revealing it to all. And what is this glorious truth? Look at the end of verse 27. This glorious truth that was before a mystery but now has been revealed is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is new and amazing stuff, Paul says. Now, Christ in you is the amazing truth that Jesus Christ now indwells every believer. No one's excluded. No believer in Christ is excluded. Now, how is this new? Well, in the Old Testament, God was with his people, to be sure. But he was with them in a different way. How did God fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall? What are we told? He came and he walked with them in the cool of the day, right? Fellowshiped with them, side by side. Sweet picture of of a beautiful fellowship and closeness and intimacy. After the fall, God was still determined to dwell among his people, but he did so locally in the tabernacle or later in the temple, correct? God dwelt with his people locally, geographically, and if you wanted to be near the presence of God on earth, where would you have to go? You would have to go to Jerusalem. And that's what the pilgrims did. The worshiping pilgrims traveled. They went up to Jerusalem, sang their psalms of ascent as they neared the place of the presence of God on earth where God was dwelling among his people. There in the temple. And if you were a Gentile, well, you could be in the same city and, and if you did all the right things, you could hope to be in the outer courts somewhere, the court of the Gentiles, but you couldn't get near his presence. And really, only one person could come before his presence, and that the high priest, and that only one day out of the year. 
But not now. God is dwelling among his people in a whole new way. In a way that was a mystery. Unknown and unknowable before, but now has been revealed. And God is making his abode with us. Not just with us, but in us. Christ in you. The hope of glory. You see, we are not only at the moment of salvation, spiritually united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But we are now also and always indwelt with his very presence. This is why Jesus at his ascension said, And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with you always because he's in you always. Where you go, he goes. Which can be encouraging and convicting, eh? He is with us because he is in us. His indwelling presence ensures that we will one day partake of the glory that is to come. When he returns and he makes all things new, when he sets all things right, when he puts everything in its proper place and proper order. And we're going to partake in that glory. That very glory. His indwelling presence is the surety, the guarantee that we will share in that glory that is to come when he returns. We're going to be transformed finally and glorified fully into Christ's likeness at Jesus' second coming. A completed work that he has guaranteed by his indwelling presence Today we struggle with sin. Today we struggle with sorrow and suffering. But one day our struggle will all be over. And Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the guarantee. That's what the hope of glory means. It's not a hope so. It's not a wish so. It's not a maybe someday it'll happen. It's not a dream. It's a settled certainty. That's what hope means in the scriptures. It's a settled certainty. It's an absolute guarantee. It's a surety. A surety that we will participate in the very glory of Christ. And that surety is guaranteed because Christ is in us. He is now And so he shall be forevermore. And one day, because he is in us, we will be transformed like him. Into his likeness. Make it so. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed at your grace and your gospel. The more we reflect on it, the better it gets. We're not just forgiven. We're not just reconciled. We're not just adopted. We're not just made to be at peace with God. We're not just given eternal life and promised future rewards. All of that is 
incredible. But on top of all of that, and perhaps most precious of all, Jesus Christ, you have come to make your abode with us, to indwell us by your Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are the guarantee, the hope of glory. You are the certainty. Your indwelling presence is the certainty of our future and final transformation and participation in the glory that is to come. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and we remember you as we come around your table now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.